You don't um, realize how much you use your foot. Yeah. <laughs> Not having. I felt yesterday, Jake walking. Yeah, what happened? Were I you was... walking? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, oh my God. I was. Oh, we were walking funny. down Wickenden Street. Yeah, <laughs> Not even walking down Wickenden. We had stepped. We had stepped out of a store, and Corey just all of a sudden, like I was ahead of her, and I turn around and I hear a, I hear a, ah, and then just sobbing, and I'm like, "What just happened?" And I'm looking at Corey, who's just in the street, <laughs> just, and I'm like, Wait, in all, the street, like down on the street, on the sidewalk. Oh, I wasn't in the middle oh, okay. of the street. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was wearing my platform Crocs as I do every day of my life. Okay, and well, there's your issue. I know. <laughs> they didn't help. They definitely made it worse. And there was just like some uneven, you know, cobblestone with a sewer cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just stepped and I fell and I felt something pop in the top of my foot. So it wasn't just you rolled it. it was no, like, no, 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 like no. There's something wrong. So I don't have yeah. any fractures. But Yeah, she there, got an x-ray. There is... There, it's not good. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do any lateral movement. And we have about 500. How many stairs realistically do you think we have to walk up? I mean, it's it's two flights. Mm. Two solid flights. And then it's two flights mm-hmm. inside the apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, two flights. So yeah. I scooted down the stairs today on my butt. Anyways, so I'm laying down and I was up from 12 to 3 a.m. like in pain. Mm-hmm. I slept like a baby. Yeah, you did. You were snoring. I almost had to <laughs> kick you over, but then you stopped. And then I thought you died or something. So then I had to check that you were Why did you think I died? I what? don't know. What are you talking about? you were snoring a lot and then you just That doesn't make any stopped. sense. Stopped. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi, Corey. Hi, Hi, Jake. Hello. Hi. We are back for... So we don't really know what to call this. I mean, this is our seventh episode. You know, we're moving through the chakras. There's only seven of them. So call this the season finale. Call it the end of the cycle, whatever you want to do. But here we are. We've made it to the end of the first season. Yay. Yay. We have with us today our good friend, Jake Gussman. Hi, Jake. Hello. <laughs> Very uh, honored to be your season finale. Yes. Um, <laughs> which I didn't know about until now. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this is going to be fun. I'm very excited for this. Jake Gusman is one of our very old friends. Jake, among many other things, sang in my acapella group. A lot of fun. Some good stories in there. Maybe we'll pull some of those out of the out of the locker. Jake was also a groomsman in our wedding. Was two hours late uh, to his call time for being a groomsman, but, but that's why uh, I made we'll, it so early. We'll come right. at another time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jake did not miss the wedding. No, okay? he didn't miss the wedding. We love Jake. Um, I, I can't start drinking whiskey at nine a.m. Sorry, like, <laughs> it just doesn't work. And there, there was whiskey at nine a.m. Unfortunately, thank you to my godfather for that one. But the big reason we have Jake here today, Jake is in a extremely interesting, extremely interesting to us, PhD program at Brown University. Jake, do you want to give yourself a little intro, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I guess maybe first as a disclaimer, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in anything I'm about to talk about. Sure, okay. I'm a PhD student, so I'm still learning things. But my lab, it's called the BrainGate Lab. It's led by my advisor, Lee Hochberg. And it's been around for a while now, um, but the lab was really one of the first that pioneered this type of technology called brain-computer interfaces, mm-hmm. which uh, is actually you know, a pretty broad field now, but um, what we've been specifically interested in is helping people who are paralyzed, specifically people who have tetraplegia, meaning they're paralyzed from the neck down, they can't move their arms or their legs, and using basically like a, a neural implant implanted into the motor cortex of their brains and allowing them to basically bypass their injury. So in the case of spinal cord injury, you're spinal cord is severed and you no longer have access to uh, control of your limbs. So instead of actually moving your own limbs, we can help people control like cursors on a screen or robotic arms to assist with activities of daily living. It's a very kind of new exploratory field still, although um, in the past few years it's become a little bit more mainstream and maybe we can talk about that at some point. Awesome. Before we go full force into that, as we usually do for the beginning of the podcast. Each podcast has a chakra that serves as the background of our discussion is how we like to talk about it. And really the intention is that we want to do a bit of an exploration through each chakra. Each one up to this point has definitely been more on the spiritual side of things. Working from root all the way to crown, you know, root very focused on grounding. You get into sacral with creativity, solar plexus. There's kind of easy buzzwords that fit each one, right? Solar plexus is kind of confidence. Heart chakra is, I don't, Corey, what would you say for heart chakra? What's the word? Compassion. Okay. I love that. Throat chakra, typically expression, third eye, intuition. Crown chakra is sort of the culmination, you could say, of all the chakras. You know, it is located at the crown of the head. You can make an argument that it's where the brain is. And that's part of why we wanted to have Jake on today. We've done a much more spiritual exploration of each one. And what we wanted to kind of demonstrate today, Jake's research and the research that his lab does, as he said, is very focused on helping people who have had some sort of severing of the communication between the brain and something in the body. Is that fair? Yeah. Ish. Okay. And so with that, the research that they're doing is demonstrating that our brains really are the center that processes everything in our body. You know, when we've talked through the chakras before, right, we've talked about like butterflies in the stomach, you know, that's your solar plexus. It can be a good sign that you've got something coming up and you're really nervous, right? What we maybe don't realize as much is that it's a feeling in your stomach, but it's very much in your head, in the sense that your brain is processing it, you're feeling that sensation because you have receptors and nerve endings and everything that catch those sensations in your body and pass them to your brain. And what we want to kind of drive towards is that, you know, everything we've talked about has been very spiritual by kind of getting into a much more scientific approach to how the brain communicates with the body. This is all real you feel uncomfortable, you feel a chakra that's off, right? Solar plexus, again, good example. We have the ability to communicate with our bodies and manipulate our bodies by breathing. If you're meditating and trying to get rid of that anxiety, 
you're doing that by slowing down and trying to maybe shut your brain off and feel that center in your body a little bit more. So Corey's going to give us a little primer on crown chakra as we typically do. And then we'll get into a little more of uh, Jake's background. Corey? Yeah. What you said was a great intro to it. It is the seventh energy center in the body. And once opened, it is connecting to this divine consciousness. That's the idea. And it's not necessarily something that's attained Mm -hmm. in everyday life. The thing that I like the most and which I find helps visually kind of understand this chakra, which is more ethereal and less of like a physical sensation like root or sacral, for example, is that the symbol is a lotus flower with a thousand petals. Mm -hmm. And each petal symbolizes a different part of our body, our being, whether that's thoughts, feelings, emotions, physical sensations, connection. And when everything is open and all those petals are open, we're then connected to that divine consciousness. Mm-hmm. I don't think we go through our lives every day with all 1,000 petals open, right? That's just, it's very difficult in the world that we live in because we're fed so much information and stimulus and that affects us physically and emotionally, which then prohibits all of these petals from opening up so that we can truly reach this divine consciousness. I like to talk about crown chakra in a more, I think, attainable and realistic way for maybe those who are new to kind of this idea is this recognition that we are so much more than just our physical body Mm -hmm. and that there is a true connection between yourself and the person next to you and then someone that you might not even know. And I think the thing that might be a nice bridge as we talk about this in a more scientific way is that we are more than just our physical body. And I think what Jake's research does is saying, well, yeah, we don't even need the physical body to have our brain work and function Mm -hmm. for us. And so... Or generate energy on its own. Exactly. Because at the end of the day the brain is essentially generating electrical signals, electrical energy, that if your body's working, quote unquote, properly, I know there's a lot of people with disabilities, I don't want to, I don't know if that's a proper word, but for your body to work properly, right, it's just an electrical system. Your brain is generating electrical signals that travels through, Jake's going to fill in the gaps here in a moment, but you know, it's your brain is just (laughs) sending electrical signals. That's, That's what triggers your muscles to move. That's what lets you point your left index finger and then point your right. So, you know, we talk about chakras as energy centers. Electricity is a form of energy and it's something that your brain does generate. So I think it'd be kind of interesting to hear, Jake, when we were talking about, you know, leading up to this, you were intrigued by this research like a long time ago, like in high school, because Jake sent us a 60 Minutes clip from 2009. We'll, we'll link it in the podcast description. It's like a 10 to 12 minute video. It's great. That features the lab that you now work at, correct? Yeah. When did you first see that? Was it in, you know, I don't know where you were in 2009. Um, I was in high school, I imagine. I, th- I think you probably He was at it. Newton. <laughs> Newton. A Newton South. Newton High School. South. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I came across that clip at senior year of high school. So that was 20. 12 mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I, at, at Newton South, we had this kind of unique honors neuroscience class, which I don't think is normally available in most high schools. Um, that's taught by this PhD lecturer, Dr. Krauss. And it's kind of like an intro college class for neuroscience. And at the end of it, we were supposed to do some kind of like project 
on something in neuroscience that we were interested in. Mm -hmm. And at the end of high school, I was beginning to think about what I was interested in doing for college and beyond. And I knew that I liked physics. I liked biology. I definitely liked neuroscience. I knew that I liked a lot of math and science, but I didn't actually, I couldn't at the moment really think about what specifically I wanted to be working on. So when I was uh, doing research for this project, I came across this 60 Minutes video, but this idea of brain-computer interfaces, which to me was really appealing because it sort of represented a really unique like confluence of both physics, engineering, and like biology. Um, so it's really like kind of smashing these two fields together and creating something really, really cool and interesting. I was also, you know, as like I think anyone who comes across this type of work was just like fascinated by the philosophical meaning of it all and, you know, what it could mean for the future of humans, future of society. Mm -hmm. and, and I also like had this same kind of idea about can we exist without our bodies? Mm. A lot of my family members had a lot of like health issues, like Crohn's disease, like, like cancers, mm -hmm. um, heart disease. And so I kind of grew up like feeling like I actually had a strong mistrust of the body. And I was thinking like, what about this potential world where we don't need the body, where we can, you know, be robots, you know, with, <laughs> with you know, our heads are attached to like cyborgs or whatever. Yeah. And we could potentially remove all of this worry about all these other health ailments and stuff like that. Very much the thoughts of like a curious high schooler. <laughs> but, sure, yeah. But I guess just hearing from what you guys were just talking about, I think one of the things that I've learned through my research currently, but also through just maybe dabbling with like meditation and stuff mm -hmm. like that was that the body actually is very interconnected with the brain. This isn't my research, but I know that there is plenty of research that's like showing that, you know, there's a good amount of like processing how that happens, like within the neurons that exist in your gut or in your, in your spinal cord. So yes, the brain is like the center of a lot of things, but there's actually a good amount of processing that happens beyond the central nervous system that, I think more and more we're getting appreciation for. So so high school sounds like you were pretty well set up if that was your interest, right? Like I did not have a neuroscience class at my high school. I know that for sure. Okay, well, um, he went to Newton South and I think that's also where John Krasinski and oh, BJ Novak came out of, right? Right. There's like a special school. The famous neuroscientists. Yes, the <laughs> no, famous no, neuroscientists, John Krasinski and BJ Novak. I'm yes. saying that that school produces not, a lot not of- Not famous for- uh, Famous- you know, Scientists, actors, writers. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> Definitely gives like a lot of opportunities for different. That's what I'm saying. Definitely unique for sure. I mean, again, you know, I did not have anything resembling a neuroscience class at my high school. I doubt Corey did either. It's awesome. So then went to Rochester with us. You were a biomedical engineering major, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that was, um, again, a result of me being like, I'm not sure exactly what science I want to work on. I will just do a major where I get to do everything. Mm -hmm. Did you get an opportunity to like kind of get your hands dirty with BCI versus, you know, maybe getting frustrated with some of the things you didn't want to learn about? Yeah, not really. Um, I mean, first of all, there wasn't a whole lot of BCI specific research at Rochester. Mm -hmm. um, There's some related stuff that I wasn't aware of immediately, but doing biomedical engineering, BME, I did actually found myself having to like take a bunch of classes that I was definitely not interested in. <laughs> yeah, I was interested in, in from like the point of being from an academic and like being interested in things in general. But looking back on it, I think there are different types of like classes I might have 
wanted to have taken to better prepare me for this type of work. Mm-hmm. What helped you get from BME into this lab? And was this lab always what you wanted to do because it kind of was your inspiration? I, I was definitely not planning when I was applying to PhD programs to get into this particular lab. I was, I was actually open to other types of labs, people doing different types of uh, neuroengineering. You know, as I said, it's a pretty broad field. So there's a lot of different types of ways that people are using technology to interface with the brain. So I don't exactly know what happened. It just kind of ended up that I was, you know, choosing between this lab and another lab. And it felt right, you yeah. know, in some ways, because I this lab did inspire me from when I was a high schooler to like enter this field. So um, it was kind of like a nice full circle moment. That's cool. So what year are you in now of your PhD program? How long is it? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. <laughs> Depends how you're like, counting. I feel, yeah, I feel like that's tough for a lot of PhDs. <laughs> okay, to, let, well, to okay let's let's ask this. What has your PhD entailed? Like, what is the well, what me, is the work I'll, you're doing? I'll, I'll answer your question first of all. Which so I, I just started my seventh year actually. Wow. Yeah, so very eager to finish up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the first couple of years was largely like class work, but my specific thesis project has been. Basically, we have this collaboration with this lab at Harvard called the Biodesign Lab. And they are world leaders in this emerging technology called soft robotics, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's making robots out of soft materials, so like fabrics and rubbers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Very different than what you would normally think of as like robots being like metal and made out of gears and very rigid. They create soft robotic wearables basically exoskeletons for people. Effectively what it is, it's almost like clothing mm-hmm. that has these like soft robotic elements. When they like move, when they actuate, they actually move the limbs, of the fingers of the people that are wearing them. So my specific project was basically taking our brain gate neural decoding system and connecting that with a soft robotic glove. The idea basically someone who has a neural implant in their motor cortex, give them the ability to move their hand, move their fingers, using just their thoughts. So this is like if I was paralyzed from the neck down and I can't move my left hand, I could put on a glove that I could control with some interface with my brain, but essentially controlling the glove, which then actuates and moves your limbs for you. Yeah, exactly. And and the background for this is that, you know, we've we and other labs have done a lot of work to allow people to control external robots, robotic arms, using their thoughts. But for people who are paralyzed, people that still have their limbs intact, they just can't move them. It's actually not the, the ideal solution. The ideal solution for anyone who's paralyzed that we ask is they want to move their own hands again. So although like moving an external robot is cool, you know, ideally if we can have them move their own hands again, that's the ideal solution. But up till now, a lot of the exoskeletons that have been developed are like these rigid, hard, metal, scary, mm-hmm. unsafe things. Yeah. So that's the promise of using this kind of soft robotics approach is that this is something that theoretically someone might be able to wear all day long and right. just you know put on in the morning and then use every day. Wow. And can you back up a second? Because when you say <laughs> using your thoughts, I, I was like reading this and I was like, so is it the force? <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Like, like, I get it. Right. And like, I watched the videos that you sent where they didn't have the actual implants, right? They're wearing like a cap okay, yeah. of some kind. Right. And it like connects the 
electrodes. So then they have the screen in front of them and letters are flashing. Right. And if they thought that's the right letter, it would type that letter. Yeah. So you, what you're talking about is a particular type of brain-computer interface that uses a non-invasive approach where they use EEG caps, like electroencephalography caps. Those would be like the electrodes on the head, right? Yeah, okay. so it's a cap of electrodes that are on the surface of the skull. And you can only kind of pick up certain types of information from that relative distance from the brain. Right. Like our lab, we have electrodes directly implanted into the neural tissue of our participants. That obviously requires open brain surgery. Um, right. But the benefit of that is that you can actually get much more precise information of what someone is trying to do. So in the case of uh, EEG caps and non-invasive BCIs, like a lot of times people have to mm. train themselves to kind of think about certain things or put their mind into certain states in order to do kind of relatively mm -hmm. uh, simple movements of like a robot arm or something. With our participants, because we have electrodes directly into the brain, really all they have to do is think about moving their own arm, like right or left or up or down or opening and closing their hand. And we have enough information that we can actually decode what they're trying to do with their own arm and then translate that to a cursor on a screen or a robot arm or something like that. Yeah. So tell me if I'm getting this right. For us, things that are more automated, right? Like I'm not thinking about waving mm -hmm. my arm right now and I don't right. think about picking up. I'm just like, okay, I want a drink. Yeah. And I pick up the cup. My thought would instead be not I want a drink. My thought would be, I need to open my hand to hold the cup. Like, how detailed do you have to be in the thought process? So that's a hard question to answer without actually being someone who's doing it. And mm. that's definitely something I'm constantly curious about. Yeah. Well, and you kind of, you sort of answered that where the EEG caps, the non-invasive brain-computer interface that you talked about, you have to train yourself to make the BCI work. It's almost like getting yeah. a, like a really fuzzy signal and you need to like really focus on making that clear. Whereas if you have the electrodes implanted, right, you're able to not think about it as hard or like generate that mental image. And it, the signal you're getting doesn't require as much decoding. It's much more clear because you're right on the brain, right? Yeah, and we're directly decoding from the neurons that would be, you know, connected to your arm, but they are not able to reach it because of the injury. Yeah, it's like listening to a signal from afar as opposed to like... One analogy I've, I think I've heard is like, imagine you're, you know, standing outside a baseball stadium or football stadium, whatever. If you're standing outside it, that, that's kind of what an EEG is, but like you can hear the roar of the crowd, you mm. know, whenever something big happens, it'll yeah. go up and down. Overall, you can hear like from really global scale what's going on inside. But like actually having implanted electrodes directly into the brain, it's as if you're in the stadium and you're talking to the person next to you. So you can actually get mm. a lot more specific information. The, the problem with that is actually you can only hear a few people around you in the stadium. And likewise, we can only record from a handful of neurons in the brain when we're using that implanted approach. But, you know, interestingly, we've been able to do quite a lot with just couple like hundred neurons but there are millions of neurons in the brain so by comparison that's really nothing yeah as you have participants is there any sort of prep that they do like do they meditate before is there like anything like that where i love <laughs> star wars but it's like yeah. this is how i've been making this make sense don't laugh i'm sorry no this is how this makes sense to me it's it's cute before as oh thanks <laughs> like i don't you watch star wars yeah they need to get like in this like very meditative, 
mm-hmm. state where they're not worried and thinking about 15 other things. They have to be aligned truly. And then they're in that state of mind. Then the force flows and they're able to make that happen. So in this case, I understand that you are placing electrodes directly on the brain, but do your participants still do any prep or need to be in any sort of like state of mind for it to work properly? And have you seen instances where maybe they were not and then it wasn't working? Well, like if someone was really upset or frustrated or maybe it wasn't working, would you then see like, okay, maybe we need to stop for today? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's something that we always kind of wonder about. You know, luckily, like because we're getting such precise information by being like implanted in the brain, like uh, a lot of our signals aren't affected by some of these global, Mm. like like some of the things you're talking about, like their emotions, fatigue, whatever, like a lot of those are kind of phenomena that exist on like a brain wide scale. Mm -hmm. People doing EEG stuff might have to care about that a little bit more, but for us, we generally don't still like that's still kind of an open question. We still like, you know, at the beginning of our research sessions, we'll ask, our participants like give us a fatigue score, give us a frustration score, like a, mm. uh, just to kind of collect that data to see if there is an effect. And you know, sometimes we'll speculate. You know, if like if someone had a late night out the night before or something, like is yeah. that affecting signals, or, or if they had a bad sleep, like. But for the most part, like as engineers, our goal is to have our technology work in all these scenarios mm. to be robust to these like fluctuations from day to day and adapt for them. So we, you know, definitely know that the signals change from day to day. So we typically have to recalibrate, you know, every day to accommodate that or incorporate certain algorithms that kind of adapt for these day-to-day, hour-to-hour changes. Yeah. For us, we, we're trying to put as much of the the effort onto ourselves and onto our technology rather than onto the participants so that they can use the technology as intuitively as they can. So your goal is almost to make it that it doesn't matter what mental state you're in because like if you need to move your hand you need to move your hand regardless of if you meditated that day if you feel upset if you're really happy like ideally the goal is that it performs Mm -hmm. when it needs to perform yeah and that's i mean that's really like an engineering design anyone who's trying to create some kind of new technology that they want people to use it has to be something that people want to use and something something that's easy to use and and that's actually ultimately kind of like one of the main drawbacks of some of these non-invasive BCI approaches is that they often do require, you know, more additional recalibration or, you know, you have to have someone actually stick electrodes on your brain every single time with a implanted BCI. It's in there, you know, all the time. And at some point we'll get to a place where it is as intuitive as, you know, reaching out and controlling your mouse mm-hmm. for a computer mm-hmm. or controlling your own arm. You, know. you talked about the signals change day to day. What does that mean, the signals change? That's a great question, and that's a great topic of research for people it's in my a, lab. a question you're trying to answer. Not, not something I am, but other people yeah. in the lab are, because basically there's a variety of different sources of noise in the signal. So I guess there's two categories. There's technological, and then there's biological. So the technological noise would be someone in the apartment next door turned on their washing machine and then is emitting a bunch of electromagnetic waves and it's somehow like affecting the signals that we're recording from. That kind of thing actually does happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe certain other aspects of the technology that are kind of causing like this electrical noise, sure. but then biological 
I guess we'll say noise, but the term that is commonly used is something called non-stationarities. Mm. So it's the signal is non-stationary, mm. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and so that biological non-stationarities can come from the brain shifting slightly due to like heartbeats or one electron might be picking up neuron A, but then the next day it's picking up neuron B because the brain kind of shifted slightly. When you say the brain shifted, do you mean the brain physically shifted or is it more like reassigning which neuron is doing which job? That's actually a good point. So what I'm talking about is like the brain is like, or the electrode maybe is moving relative to the brain or vice versa. So like an actual physical movement. Right. But there is also a question of, you know, learning. You know, the brain is a dynamic system. For the most part, like neurons that we see one day are doing the same thing the next day, but perhaps through a learning process, maybe one neuron can actually change what it's encoding mm -hmm. from one day to the next. So that's something you kind of have to just keep track of and adapt for. When you have that situation in the lab where the brain is shifting, it's changing, maybe it is a physical change, maybe it's the neuron has been reassigned, if you want to call it that. What do you learn from that, I guess? It depends, you know, what your goals are. I mean, yeah. so if your goals are to create a robust system mm -hmm. that doesn't care about those shifts, like you're trying to reduce that noise. And luckily, you're not reliant on like one electrode and one neuron. We actually have like these electrode arrays that have uh, 100 electrodes on each array. That gives you some like robustness to these kind of like day-to-day -day mm -hmm. shifts. So maybe you want to recalibrate or try some kind of like automatic recalibration process. But like if you're coming from a neuroscience angle, you might actually be interested in that particular shift and what that means about the yeah. brain. Um, so what uh, my PhD has been comprised of has been both these like engineering types of challenges, but also I've been coming across a lot of neuroscience related discoveries yeah. <laughs> along the way because this is a very unique kind of environment that we actually have electrodes implanted in a behaving human. <laughs> right. Most of neuroscience research is using, you know, either monkeys or mice or something, or they're they're using kind of uh, neuroimaging like MRI, fMRI, EEG to kind of get this much higher level picture of the human brain. So we're in a pretty unique position and we can actually contribute a decent amount to the neuroscience um, as well as, you know, achieving our engineering goals. Sure. That's kind of a good point is that engineering is very focused on solving a problem. You're trying to create a robust system that can account for those little shifts and still accomplish the mission at the end of the day. But why does it work that way might not necessarily be the goal. Yeah. I, I mean, I can give you an example from the paper that I'm writing right now is it's very much a neuroscience-y kind of thing. Um, basically, through our research, we found that we're recording from neurons in the motor cortex. So these neurons are generally associated with motor movement. You know, we don't expect these neurons to uh, respond to like visual information or touch information or, or something like that. But we've seen over the years that the neurons in the motor cortex can also respond to sensory information. You know, in particular, like if someone is watching someone else move their arm or they're, you know, watching on a screen, like some kind of movement on the arm, the same neurons that would respond to him attempting his own arm movement actually respond to him, like watching someone else's hmm. movement. This is a concept like known as like mirror neurons. Okay. It was a kind of a hot topic in neuroscience for a long time. It was somewhat surprising, but somewhat expected that we would see kind of these visual responses in the brain. But 
something that I was very interested in was like what happens when he's watching, you know, robots or watching things that are kind of on the cusp of what you call anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. So these mirror neurons are like defined as neurons that respond when you're watching someone else perform an action. But like what happens if you're watching like a robot do something or a dog do something? And the paper I'm hopefully submitting quite soon is actually like having a participant look at a variety of different types of movements, like ranging from human-like movements or robot movements to very non-human movements. Hmm. And like looking at that like gradient, I found that was yeah. pretty interesting. How, how long has this research been going on for? And what does the future look like for this? What is the hope and the goal? And what do scientists in your lab think the realistic timeline is for something bigger with this? Yeah, I mean, so the origins of this type of work are somewhere in the 1900s. Our lab has been doing this particular study for about 15, maybe almost 20 years now. Okay. It's a inter very interesting time because in the past few years, there have been a lot of like interest outside of academia in creating these types of systems. For a long time, it felt like this type of technology was way too out there, like could not possibly be something that would actually become a commercial device. But yeah, there are companies like Elon Musk's Neuralink. There's a company called Synchron and Paradromics. There's a few uh, of these types of companies that are re really trying to take what we and other academic labs have developed and, and create a, like an actual commercial product. That has ultimately been the goal of our work as well. You know, my advisor, Lee Hochberg, is a not only a researcher, but he's also like a neurologist at MGH. And, you know, he sees patients in the neuro ICU all the time who have spinal cord injury, they have ALS, they have mm. stroke. And now there aren't a lot of options for people. There's currently no verified like cure to spinal cord injury. Right. So for him, I know that the motivation has always been to give them some kind of uh, technology that'll help them actually regain independence yeah, so our lab's goal has always been like focused on these particular patients and giving them hope. <laughs> yeah, I think that's amazing because I, I go back to what we were saying in the beginning and then what you said, yeah. what you were like thinking about when you were in high school is that is there a possibility to to live a full life without your physical body? Because this is a yoga podcast and I'm thinking about tying it back to obviously not as drastic as the participants that you are working with, but this idea that we often view our physical yoga practice as the only thing. And you know, my, my foot is just like <laughs> a little <laughs> sprained and I'm totally fine. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, like what, what is my practice going to look like for the next couple of weeks? And it's like, well, I'm not really moving. So what's my pranayama, my breathing practice? And what is my meditation practice going to look like? And can I actually focus on that part of it while my physical body is healing? And the answer is yes. And I bet it's going to be wonderful because I never give myself enough time to actually focus on those things because I'm so concerned with the physical part of the practice because that's, you know, 90% of what I teach. So I just think it's really interesting to start to, to think about and recognize and bring attention to the fact that this thing in our head is like, we don't know everything about it. Yeah. I guess the, the only thing I would, I've gone a little bit more in the other direction in terms of like being appreciative of what our bodies do and, and how they like affect mm -hmm. our brain and return and stuff. You know, it's ultimately it's like a balance, right? You know, there, there are certain 
people that see this type of research and they think about, yeah, a world where we're, you know, just disembodied heads that are, you know, <laughs> like kind of frightening, that are, you know, that. existing in virtual reality. And, you know, and, I feel like that's the thing you hear more is that people just want to like download their brain to a computer and then it's like, you know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of that stuff is. Sorry, is, that's, that's way up. No, there. no. I mean, that, I mean, that's the type of thing I was definitely thinking about yeah. early on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, a lot of it's sort of unrealistic and doesn't actually really make the downloading brain thing is actually very. I actually don't even understand how that would happen. I mean, you would create a copy of yourself in the cloud, I know. and then you would still be in your body. No, you can't just jump ship. I don't know. I feel like this is definitely like a dude's conversation. You know what I mean? It's like, well, like, what if we like downloaded our brains? And Corey's just sitting over there, like, oh my god, yeah, I definitely stop. don't think about please that. Please stop. So, so yeah, so the, I think these ideas are cool, but I mean, I, I at this point, I'm quite skeptical. Everyone here has you know experienced like Zoom meetings, yeah. and yeah. you know we've begun to learn like what it would be like to like kind of do things in a more virtual way and yeah so the people like mark zuckerberg who want to push that as far as possible and actually have people like do meetings in like virtual reality yeah. and potentially at some point like using brain computer interfaces to kind of like create this kind of virtual reality world mm -hmm. that we all interact with yeah. i mean i'm highly skeptical of that because we rely on more than just visual stimuli and yeah. or an auditory stimuli I mean, yeah, maybe at some point we can replicate touch in a virtual environment. And may maybe at some point the virtual world could be almost identical to the physical world, but that's a, a long ways away. And there's there's so much richness in the physical mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. that nowadays we, we totally ignore. Um, and I think that's actually a big benefit of meditation and yoga and stuff that you actually become aware of those, your senses that society has kind of caused us to stop thinking about. Yep. To me, it kind of illustrates this. There's obviously power in the brain, but it's kind of a dichotomy in the sense that your brain really is just an organic material that has the ability to send electrical signals, you know, along your spinal cord and just through your entire body and, you know, control everything that happens to some extent, even the subconscious things that you do, right? Like you don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to think about your heart beating. Your brain's taking care of that and you don't even have to think about that. So on the one hand, it's like the brain is very simple because it's an electrical system. It sends signals. Those signals travel along nerve endings and your muscles contract and respond, right? Like on the one hand, it's very simple in terms of a system. But on the other hand, it's so complex as a controlling device, just the things that we can think of and the things that we can do and we can, I've been having this experience recently of realizing that a lot of the sensations that I might have in my body are like, oh, I feel sad today. I'm feeling depressed about this thing. What I've kind of realized for myself is that a lot of times, right, like if I really push myself to try to be in the moment around me, not get so caught up in my own head, I have the ability to change my mental state, to you know, at least try to push myself in a direction that I know is going to make me feel better. And I feel like that's just such a critical thing for people to think about and try to understand because we really can control so much about how we feel in our bodies, how we react to things. I mean, it can come down to just mindset. Someone gets mad at you. How do you react? Something doesn't quite go your way. Corey and I had that day yesterday, right? Hurting your foot. It was like, that was kind of like strike one. And then just a myriad of other things came up, 
you know, that just made the day terrible. And I in particular was really (laughs) struggling. But again, it's like you take a step back, you breathe and you realize everything's okay. Mm -hmm. This is not as bad as my brain is making it out to be. And that's the practice, though, because it's not easy. And so that's why my question about does the state of mind or these other factors affect the participants that you have as they're trying to fire and move something when they don't have the ability to? Is there something you've seen where you've been like really surprised by that you like totally just didn't expect? So I'll answer that question after I respond to Corey's comment first, which is one example of state of mind kind of affecting things, sort of, is that what often happens with our participants is that if they're actually trying too hard, Mm. then it doesn't work as well as as if they're just trying to do things naturally. So there's sometimes that where they actually have to take a breath and be like, okay, I'm just going to like naturally move my arm to the right or to the left or or think about doing that. And then usually like the, the system works um, a lot better. You see an improvement. Yeah. And something that was surprising. I'm not sure if this is directly answering your question, but some kind of cool thing um, that I remember realizing is that um, so sometimes our system works so well <laughs> and so like quickly that we can actually anticipate their movement before they're actually trying to move something. You know, there actually are like preparatory signals in the brain that kind of relate to this. But if someone knows that they're about to move their arm to the right, like sometimes we would actually move their arm to the right before they actually really mean to. Obviously, that's like a weird experience, but mm-hmm. the, the result is that they actually feel less in control of the system. Like it, it moves like so fast that it feels like it's like disembodied from. Yeah, from, like it feel it feels unnatural. Yeah. Okay. Because there's actually some natural existing like delays when the signal travels from your brain to your arm or whatever. You see good examples of that. If you've ever watched like a slow-mo video of people getting like, I don't know, shot with paint balls or something, like you can see like them get hit. And there's Uh like a delay and then you see the emotion change on their face. Like it's small, but there is a delay between getting an input and recognizing it. Right. And something that you wouldn't normally expect. You think that everything we do is like almost immediate, but it's kind of like if you have like a mouse and you have the speed set too high. Oh, yeah. You know, it moves too fast before you... You know, so you have to lower this. <laughs> that's a, no, that's a great. That's a great analogy. I it's love like it. when you use someone else's computer and they have right. the, yeah, they have the, the mouse speed yeah. set so high, and you're like, "Why is this going everywhere?" <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah. But usually, you can adapt to that actually eventually, and that's the other aspect of you know this work is that yes, we're trying to do as much as we can to take the onus, the burden off of the participants, but there is a natural like learning that they do and eventually the system works the best when there is this kind of symbiotic merging that occurs yeah Yeah. Hmm. fascinating well i always knew that jake was smart i just didn't know (laughs) (laughs) so this has kind of been how smart this is kind of this is i'm assuming you're gonna fact check everything i say and just like delete it no no No. Yeah, uh, Carl, can we do some fact checks? Carl, a little fact checking. Um, we don't have the fact checker. The fact no. checker is usually me. Yeah, it's usually Corey, which that, yeah. Um, it's a tough thing, right? Because the brain, as much as we do know about it, there is still so much we do not understand. I think that's a great point. And you know, sometimes there is this kind of basic assumption that the brain is a computer that just kind of controls our body. But really, there, it's some some ways, it's sort of an illusion of control because... 
this part of the brain that's like generally most associated with like consciousness and language and internal thought, all these things that like humans uniquely have that other animals don't have, that kind of makes us uniquely human. That's like a significant part of the brain, but it's only one part of the brain. And the, so much is happening at the subconscious level. It's a good reminder that we, you know, we can control our emotions or, you know, we have some agency, but, you know, as you kind of said, the way to do that was by becoming aware of some of these subconscious elements mm-hmm. in your yeah, in your body, in your subconscious, or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how to explain that. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just such a complex system. I, you know, you you said something there, right? We do have some agency, some control. I use this analogy a lot. Your brain and your body. Think of it like a race car. A lot of people, myself included, you can really kind of put the car on autopilot, let it drive itself. You're kind of being more reactive. You're not really you know, necessarily giving things active thought or trying to be in control of what's going on, right? And I've certainly struggled with that with impulses, addiction, or just like kind of being in a funk. You just kind of feel like, I don't want to do the normal things that make me happy. I don't want to go out and do that kind of stuff. But the car can be on autopilot. The car can drive itself. It can roll down a hill without anyone touching anything. You don't know where you're going to end up, but you're in the driver's seat. You're still in there you have the opportunity to grab the wheel at any time and start not being as reactive, being more proactive, right? Emotions pop up and instead of just blurting them out, you know, you can kind of take that in, assess it, and then, you know, generate a reaction or you don't react at all because you're not on autopilot. You're holding the steering wheel and you're in control. And I feel like that's something that people tend to forget or you get in a mind state where you just feel like I can't get out of this. I'm struggling so much. Trust me, been there. It's not an easy thing to break out of, but mm-hmm. we we have that ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes I think that way. Sometimes I, I think another way, which is it depends on like different types of people. Like so for me, like I've spent most of my life kind of in this kind of like disembodied existence <laughs> where I've largely kind of ignored like my body and, and very much held on to some of the things that you're talking about. Like I am in control of things. It's kind of like a very male way of thinking of things too, I think. But society just kind of teaches you that you should ignore your feelings or ignore your mm-hmm. whatever. And um, and I've, you know, definitely taken that to heart. And that's in some ways that's been really helpful. You know, sure. I maybe I can study longer than other people because I'm not thinking about I don't know. Eating or whatever. Yeah. That's what I do. So that's like some utility to that type of thing. But ultimately, that's that's not the most sustainable. So, yeah, it's interesting hearing you say that because I think for me, I've been working around uh, the other way around. Yeah. Where, like, oh, I I need to like connect more with my body and not just rely on my, Mm -hmm. what I think is the most important organ in my body, which is my brain. And, (laughs) you know, you know, yeah, it's kind of two ends of a spectrum, right? You can either be trying to control, which is not a good thing, or completely on autopilot. And, you know, it sounds like you and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum, but it's it's really trying to find mm-hmm. that happy medium, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Man, oof. I know. It's awesome. So what's after the PhD? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think beyond. Hey, mom. <laughs> my, what? My Jeez. next week. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So for people in PhD programs, there's often the decision between staying in academia versus going into industry. Yeah. As I said, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the yeah. commercial mm-hmm. realm with this technology. So I think my first interest would be uh, exploring those options and maybe working for one of those companies. I mean, you know, I've spent six, seven years theorizing about yeah. developing certain techniques and 
discoveries about the brain and whatever. But now there's this opportunity potentially to actually apply what I've learned and to change people's lives. And so that's... Yeah. Well, if any of our clients feel like getting some uh, electrodes in their head, we'll let you know and send send them your way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. This has been a really, really fantastic discussion. We've been trying to do it for a long time. Jake's a busy guy. We're busy people, but we finally made it happen. I wanted to close and say we've been friends for I think 11 years at this point now yeah. almost and it's like very cool to see mm. your progression and yeah. like what you've been doing and it's I'm excited for Dr. Jake Usman to grace our presence. Yeah, man. yeah I think I feel like I've been kind of in this like cave of my PhD for a long time and hopefully I'm you know, coming out yeah. a new yes. person. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I can't wait. Yeah. It'll be well, great. Thank you very much for, Thanks, for being on, Jake. Yeah, thank you, um, guys. Season one. Woo! Maybe a surprise eighth up? Maybe a surprise eighth up. We'll see. Okay. But, um, we'll, we'll get there. Cool. Thanks again, Jake. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.